We're actually starting on a new series tonight, which is called Taking Your Faith Private. It's a play kind of on this title, which is Going Public With Your Faith, which is a very popular book and series on evangelism. The reason I kind of picked Taking Your Faith Private is I really do feel like we have this pressure to stay silent about our faith that many of us have talked about, we've acknowledged, there's even been books written on it, but we've never really talked about it as a group in here. And I want to be clear, this is not a talk on evangelism per se, because we already did a series on evangelism. It really is even more personal than that. It's really more just about how we are reacting to this pressure to stay silent. So why would we take on this series? Tonight's our intro, and we begin every series by kind of justifying why we would take up time to talk about this. I'm going to put up a couple reasons on the board, and then we'll have a little bit of fun. So the first reason is, I believe as Christians, we're called to speak about the truth. Jesus is the truth. I think we're called to speak truth and speak about the truth. I I think that's a given. I think we would all agree that that's not something that I need to spend a lot of time defending or putting a lot of uh, verses up there, reading that. I think that's something we all know. I also believe as Christians that we're called to live as witnesses to Christ. We're called to be ambassadors in the world. Uh, We're called to remain distinct from the culture. I think those are kind of the things that set this up for me. And I think many of us want to do that somewhere. So here's what I believe also is happening I feel like we're feeling a pressure to stay silent, uh, to live out our faith privately. Maybe not to completely surrender our faith, but maybe the best words to remember is keep it to yourself. Keep your faith to yourself. It's a private matter. And I think most of us are unaware of where this pressure is coming from. We might have experienced it, but we've never sat down and thought, why is this happening? And I think unless we know why it's happening or where it's coming from, we really aren't going to be able to formulate very much of a response, even if it's just for ourselves. Even if it's just a question like, should I keep it private? Finally, I think a lot of us have accepted the premises, the ideas that contribute to our silence. This one might catch you a little bit by surprise, but I'm actually going to state that sometimes we actually agree with the things that tell us to keep our faith private. And I'm not sure totally if we even catch ourselves realizing why it is we agree. So I want you just to remain cognizant of that. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later uh, in the series, just about how this happened. All right. So those are reasons we should do this. I actually believe that this is good stewardship of our time to talk about something that's very important uh, because it's personal. You know, we just finished a couple series that were much more theological in nature. They were dealing with struggles that we have about how we think about things like salvation or even learning about the Holy Spirit. But this, to me, is very personal because the pressure actually will impact the way you live out your Christian life. It is about you and your heart and your relationship to Christ and others and how you live out your faith. You know, a lot of times in these series, what I'm accused of is that I hold my opinion till the very end. Like I'm trying to goad you into making all the classic mistakes. So this time I'm going to flip it entirely on its head. I'm actually going to take a position right at the beginning. And what I'm risking is that you'll hate it. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you my position so I'm not hiding anything about this topic. I want you to know exactly what it is that I think about this topic. And if you hate it or if you resist it, that's okay. Hang on for just a moment um, because over the next few weeks, we're going to be developing a little bit more about that. So here it is. Pretend this comes from some really, really smart person in a book. (laughs) Here's what I believe. 
There's a growing pressure in society for Christians to remain silent and hide their faith. While some of us occasionally encounter this pressure, many of us are unaware of just how far it is spread or how deeply it's ingrained in our culture. Some of us have unconsciously bought into the belief that we should keep our faith to ourselves. And most would mistakenly conclude that they came to this belief on their own. This pressure is not accidental, nor is it naturally evolving. It is not something new. It is and has been carefully planned and has its roots going back at least six decades. But its greatest effects have yet to be felt. This pressure to take our faith underground will only increase during our lifetime. And I really mean during our lifetime. Like while you are alive, I believe that's going to happen. You're going to see more and more of it. That's kind of my summary of what I believe about this and why I'm doing this. Because I can give you a lot of whys we should do this, but there is one that just sticks out at me. Is this is so important that we at least together discuss what is happening and what is to come. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist. Uh, just somebody who's wise enough to know that we don't think about this, and while we're not thinking about it, six decades of trajectory have already started, and we're not really aware, most of us, of what's going on. All right, now I'm going to do something just a little bit heady before we have fun. I'm going to explain to you what social stigma is and where this comes from. Now, in my public policy class, we talk a lot about stigma and social stigma and the control that is put on society in stigma. I'm going to give you some very simple definitions that we're going to use, uh, and then that'll be like the end of the heady stuff. First, why am I even talking about stigma? Because this pressure that I just referred to is really a form of stigma. There is a stigma against being a Christian. That's my proposition. There is a stigma that we feel about self-identifying as a Christian in certain circumstances or for some of us in most circumstances. So you can tell, and there may be even a stigma to live out the gospel or to even proclaim the gospel or to speak about Jesus Christ. Any of those things may be subject to it. So I just want to at least put up there what a stigma is. So here's the definition that I'm going to use. It's fairly simple. I say simple because there are lots of theories from sociologists on what stigma is, but I'm going to use one that will work for our purposes. It's an attribute, a behavior or a reputation which is socially discrediting, causing an individual to be labeled as a deviant from the norm. If you hold to something that is a belief or some sort of attitude that you're stigmatized about, you'll feel like you're less of a person or the society is discrediting you. And the idea here is to tell you you're not normal. You're deviating from the norm. I also want to put up here what a prejudice is. A prejudice is a preconceived judgment. It's often unfounded. It's a preconceived judgment towards persons because of gender, race, class, ethnicity, religion, nationality, lots of reasons. Now, before you get lost in definitions, why did I put these two up here? As I've been talking to you about this subject, I've heard us already mix them up a little bit. Last week, in just conversations, I heard people say, well, I'm sure that many groups feel stigmatized by Christians. You ever been on one of those blogs where a friendly Christian has started to write in all caps, screaming out against everybody else in the forum? And as you're reading it, much to your horror, you're thinking, oh my God, this person is ruining it for the rest of us, right? You've seen that before? Here's what I want to be careful of. 
It's true that there may be Christians who are prejudiced against other people. That's not what this series is about. We're not talking about all the bad things that we've done to other people or the things that we do that ruin our reputation. What we're really talking about is something different. Here's a distinction between these two that I want to keep in mind. Stigma is societally enforced. Why is that important? Because what we're talking about in this series is an effort by our society to silence. It's different than a prejudice. We may be prejudiced against others. Others may be prejudiced against us. I'm not talking about the individual level of where people's individual prejudices are. What I'm talking about is actually, you can almost say, an orchestrated effort to try to keep people silent. And that's a big difference because it's very tempting when we start this series to say, well, don't we do X? And it's, if you mean we as in people or Christians or other people, then we're talking about prejudices more often than trying to apply a stigma. Last thing I'm going to put up here before we move on is what's called passing. That's the formal term for keeping it to yourself. Sociologists will say that you're passing if you're putting on a cultural performance where a member of a stigmatized group acts in a way to avoid the stigma associated with the group. There's actual studies of people who pass or engage in passing. What do they end up doing? If you feel like maybe you're stigmatized in the group or maybe you don't feel that you want to identify the group, you start to fabricate. Some people just outwardly lie. Maybe you don't know anybody who does that. Maybe you do. Or you'd invent an alternative persona. Maybe concealment is the next thing. You just actually hide something that you don't want to talk about. Or maybe the most common one is what's called avoidance. You carefully select facts to let out, almost like distraction, so that nobody's really going for the thing that you need to talk about. Anyone been asked a direct question about your faith, about your positions, anything where you kind of like do with the magician trick, which is look over here, right? While you're concealing or avoiding the very thing that you're the most scandalized about, that's passing. Just keep those terms in mind because we had to differentiate between a stigma that's applied societally versus our individual prejudices versus passing. Morgan? Would you, um, <clears throat> would you make a difference between, uh, let's say... I think there can be antagonistic questions that are asked of Christians, you know, specifically to, to you know, let's say the homosexual issue. I don't know that one comes to mind. Lots like, hey, what's your, what's Christian positions on, on homosexual or something like that? Um, do you think there are places in wise stewardship of evangelism how to speak where you're not doing passing because of fear of engaging that issue? You're actually saying, oh, I'm in a situation where this person is prompting something, and uh, I see that, and I think it's a trap. I actually don't think it's a real thing. So I think maybe the best thing to do is, is to pass in, in, in directly answering this, but maybe coming back to it. I mean, would you differentiate between that at all? Or? Yeah, because in that case, what you're doing is you're literally at the level where you're trying to determine, like, how do I respond to what's being put in front of me, which is different than do I even allow my identity to be known at all, right? So you might be in a work situation where somebody is saying, I think it's crazy 
that there are people who don't believe that all gay people should be allowed to marry and all those things, right? And it may be your personal opinion, or it may be even more of your group denominational view that, well, I actually think there are bases why we not allow that. I'm not describing how you engage, but if you feel the temptation to just bury the fact that you're a Christian, because this person's voice is so loudly heard, and as soon as you identify as a Christian, you're actually going to be the target of that, that's the concealment, right? Or it could be the avoidance, right? Where, or some people actually, I've seen lately, there should be another one on here, by the way, which is where you do the offensive. Like, people jump in and go, that's crazy. Christians are crazy. I don't even, you know, they actually go overboard uh, to tell you that, no, I agree with you, and they, they distance themselves in a group in such a way by almost just dislodging their membership uh, to save themselves from being stigmatized publicly. That's what I think is the issue. Peter. With uh, your initial comments on <clears throat> stigma as opposed to prejudice, you're not saying that there's never been stigma that's come from Christians. We're just focusing on this instance of stigma, right? The, the current one. It actually probably applies to other faiths, but to a lesser degree. So I would. So if somebody says, well, is it just Christians that are the subject to it? I'd say Christians are more of the subject to it because they're the majority faith and they are a bigger target. And by the way, there's a blurring. I mean, is, is stigma and prejudice totally separate from each other? No. There are stigmas that come because of prejudices and there are prejudices that come from certain... I mean, but I just want to be clear because I've heard in our conversation sometimes somebody said... Like if I say, I think there's a stigma against Christians, you could say, well, if you're a member of this minority group, you must have felt that your whole life. It's like, yes, but oftentimes that's more prejudice than society trying to come up with a way to make those people feel ostracized or stigmatized. Let's have a little bit of fun. Think about a situation where you're in an elevator. I was thinking about this, like, what are the fun things to do in an elevator? You know the rule when you're in an elevator. Right? Most of the rules are stay silent. Right? You all have to face a certain way. Right? You have to look up. And as everybody gets out, everybody readjusts. There's like a shuffle that happens whenever somebody leaves the elevator. Right? Uh, we all know the rules. But the thing that makes things like this, and this is a low level of stigma, what's so interesting about this is these are socially enforced rules that nobody has to tell you. But if you get them wrong, everybody knows right away. So I've actually was reading some of these. Here's some. When entering the elevator, avoid facing the doors and instead stand facing those already in the elevator. <laughs> the only reason that seems strange to us is because we all know that's breaking the rules, right? But nowhere did Congress enact the rules of elevators, right? Uh, these are powerful rules that are not legislated, and yet we all adhere to them. Here's another one. Grimace painfully while smacking your forehead and muttering, shut up, damn it, all of you just shut up. <laughs> Here's a variation of Catherine's. When the elevator doors open, don't get inside. Just speak to the people who are already inside and say, I know you're wondering why I've called you here today. <laughs> As you're descending in the elevator, look at the numbers and count them all out loud, especially in descending order. Crack open your briefcase, peer inside, and say, you got enough air in there? <laughs> Here's another one. Simply meow occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
ask each passenger getting on if you can push the button for them, but then push the wrong one. <laughs> and finally, take pictures of other people in the elevator with your cell phone. <laughs> now, not all socially enforced rules rise to the level of stigma, but it is a fun way of starting to understand the difference between legislation and stigma. Those rules aren't written down anywhere. There's nothing in the elevator manual that we all get that says this is how you do it, and yet there's this great pressure for us to conform. This pressure is very important to what we're going to be talking about. Here's another pressure. Take the stigma against cigarettes. If you go back to the 1930s, 40s, 50s, it'd be hard to find people who didn't smoke. Smoking was so widespread, smoking, cigarette companies were allowed to say that smoking had health benefits. They routinely advertised the health benefits of cigarettes. Doctors smoked, pregnant women smoked, people smoked in hospitals, people smoked giving birth. Uh, there was nothing wrong with smoking. In fact, there was something great about it. It wasn't until the end of the 1950s and early 1960s that the FDA finally started cracking down and saying, you can't say that it has health benefits, but that's about as far as they went. No more saying that it's healthy. Now, you know today that there is a great stigma about smoking, isn't there? We know that probably X number percent, whatever you want to say, 15, 20% of people who go to our churches probably smoke. When was the last time you ever saw somebody light up at church? Why? I mean, there's nothing, I mean, I don't know that Jesus says this is sinful. I know you can make a health argument, but you can make a health argument about a lot of things. But we are so stigmatized about smoking that if you were to actually walk out on the patio of your church and light up, I mean, you know, you might as well be naked. There's just, there's going to be so much horror. People are going to be shocked. I was reading that in 2013, it's just starting now, the city of Pasadena, not far from here, has now banned smoking not only citywide, but if you live in a multifamily house, meaning a condo, townhome, apartment, you cannot smoke anywhere in the public areas or even in your own house. Now, if you went back to the 1950s and you said, there's going to come a time in the United States that you cannot smoke in the entire city of Pasadena, not in any multifamily home inside, no restaurants, no outside, doesn't matter if you're sitting on a patio, all of that will be banned. The whole city will be smoke-free, except if you live in your own single-family home will be the only exception. And you said that in the 1950s, people are like, only if the Russians take over. <laughs> only if we're communists in the year whatever it is that this happens, because there's no way in the United States of America that's going to happen. But it's happened. It's happened. How did it happen? When we talk about this from a policy perspective, it happened because we stigmatized the behavior. We made it dirty. We made it bad. We made it so that nobody would stand up for the rights of smokers, not even smokers themselves. What we did was we stigmatized smoking to the point that even smokers won't stand up for their rights. They feel ashamed. It's a disease. It's something you have to quit. It's not something you stand up and say, this is my right to smoke the cigarette. You say, this is bad. Now, some of you may agree that it's bad. Here's what I'm going to say you need to think about. Do you agree that it's bad because it's really bad? Most likely, I'll admit. Or is it because you are the subject of the same societal signals that make you believe that it's bad? 
How did we make it bad? We put ads like this all over the place where a little kid is standing in front of his mom while she smokes. We invented something that has always existed. I mean, is there such a thing as a cigarette that doesn't put smoke out into the room? No, it's impossible, right? But that wasn't enough, so we created something and we called it secondhand smoke. Right? Secondhand smoke. Like, is there thirdhand smoke? Was there, what, was there fourthhand smoke? Like, how far do you have to be to qualify for those categories? But what we did was we created something bad. We made it worse. And then if it wasn't bad enough that kids could get this secondhand smoke and get cancer, some of us don't care about kids, let's be honest. They had to come up with another campaign where we were smoking in front of our dogs and they might get it. Now, I'm poking fun at this, but this is very serious because it did something most of us consider hugely positive. It allowed us to come to the place where we said, we need to curb smoking. We're going to curb smoking by not having advertisements to kids. We're going to ban smoking. We're going to put taxes on cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes, I don't know how much they cost to make, but the amount you pay is all taxes, and we're trying to regulate it out of the way. Where are all the smokers who are going to stand up against these taxes? Nowhere to be found because they're all stigmatized. Because the societal pressure is so big that if you stand up and you say, I think it's time that we take back our streets and allow people to smoke everywhere they want, who's going to sign up for that protest? Nobody. Would anybody in here? Is there anybody in here that would go to that? No. I didn't think so. Because we know that you might as well be doing a dance with the devil to be on the smoker side. And what I'm telling you is, that's stigma. When you impose stigma on people, it makes it easier to legislate because no one shows up to protest. If we could legislate something, like back in the 1950s or 60s, it would have been so hard to do. So we had to spend years breaking it down and turning it into just something that nobody would stand up for. You can see where my analogy is starting to go. Yes? When you say that you have to do this for years so that you can make it legislate, it makes it sound like there's some sort of intent, like it's designed. Are you inferring that stigma is designed by somebody or someone or is just a fallout of how people interact at a large level? There are times when stigma is grassroots, but I would say most of the time it's actually engineered. That's probably to some people controversial, and the reason it's controversial is because they're the ones engineering it. So as a preview, the reason stigma is different than prejudice is because stigma is engineered by cultural elites, people who are able to determine which way the culture is going to go. They, almost like releasing stigma into the water source, let it go out, and then they enforce it. After a while, it has a life of its own. But it's, in my mind, a lot of times, it's well thought out. It is not random. That's why I said my thing. It's not random. It's not haphazard. It doesn't evolve on its own. It's actually something that somebody says, we need to change the way the society's thinking, and we're going to do it with something like this. I mean, even in this case, it was, you could see documents of people, how they did it. Just going down a rabbit hole for a moment, the tobacco industry is one of the strongest industries in the world, especially back then. It wasn't just accidental that you were able to beat them in 50 years' time. It was just unbelievable, right? It was very well thought out. Here's another one you guys might be aware of, maybe. How about this? How many of us, when we're standing around talking about where we want to go to eat, you know that happens sometimes? Like, where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. I don't care. I don't know. Next time, if you want to do a little social studies experiment, the next time somebody is doing that, just go, how about McDonald's? And just watch everybody look at you like, you're not supposed to talk about that out loud. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, if you go to McDonald's at 1130 at night and get some, you know, whatever it is you eat there. I can't even say it because I'm stigmatized. (laughs) You keep that to yourself. I mean, there's certain things you do just we don't want to know about, you know. How did we get to that point? Because we have issues that we're trying to deal with in society. And because we start facing a health epidemic, an obesity epidemic, we're starting to face illnesses that we attribute to this thing right here, the Big Mac, right? And this is the lightning rod, right? There is no worse food. Just try it. Forget the McDonald's thing. Just go, I'm really craving a Big Mac right now. Just watch people look at you kind of like, what's going on? (laughs) Here's what I was thinking about. How many calories are in a Big Mac? Does anyone know? About 600, 550. I was thinking, like, you know, if we were going to go out tonight, um, forgetting, like, if we went to, like, Legends, if we were just going out tonight and somebody said, where do you want to go, where do you want to go, where do you want to go, and somebody goes, how about Chipotle? Most of us are like, yeah, that's right. It's okay to say that, right? <laughs> it's okay to say Chipotle. You're not going to look, get looked at weird. You're not going to feel this weird stigma if you say Chipotle. Most people are like, yeah. I mean, you might not like Chipotle. I'm not saying that it's universally endorsed that you must like it. But... No one is going to look at you weird for going to Chipotle. So I was thinking of what I would buy at Chipotle. I was looking at this burrito that they sell. And online, Chipotle allows you, they have a, like a calculator for the calories. So you get to choose all the things that you would put in your burrito. And I was just thinking, I'm just going to just choose this. Is this a chicken burrito, right? Just chicken, a little bit of white rice, corn salsa, nothing crazy. No guacamole, none of that, right? Cheese. Little bit of cheese, no sour cream. Actually, no, I, I think I put a little sour cream in there too. All right, so how much is this burrito, by the way? It's 1,100 calories for this burrito, which, good news for me, I could eat two Big Macs for that, right? <laughs> so that's great. Um, yes, Rachel is right. The tortilla alone is 300 calories, 290 to be exact. So you could go into McDonald's, eat half a Big Mac. Or you could go to Chipotle and go, I'll just have the tortilla by itself, you know. (laughs) I'm betting the Big Mac might be tastier. Yes? Well, if you want to talk about the changing stigma against, like, unhealthy food, let's say we do have rising obesity rates as a result of, like, just increasingly sedentary lifestyles. Is stigma maybe, like, morally neutrally the way that society pushes itself to evolve to accommodate something like that? by eating better. Most of us in this case, if stigma was engineered in a laboratory, like I was saying to Chris, in some evil way, and Dr. Evil's in the laboratory, like deciding what stigma to release, most of us would probably support this one. Except that in this case, it makes no sense because we've got this positive stigma for Chipotle and this negative stigma for McDonald's that has nothing to do with facts and reality. What it has to do with is just, we've decided we need an enemy we decided we need to stigmatize people of certain things. And, of course, if you get into the social science, some people are like, of course, that's because lower-income people go to McDonald's and all you can You go on this forever. What I'm trying to point out is no one has legislated a single thing against McDonald's yet. And yet, if they ever did, if they ever just said, you know what, you can't have the Big Mac, it's just going to be outlawed, I would bet very few people would show up to fight for it. Yes? Didn't they try that in New York with soda? They did it in New York with soda, right? Because they said, we're going to legislate it. And there was a backlash, right? But it wasn't as big as it could have been. And I think in a few years, there probably won't even be one anymore, right? I mean, how many times are you on the internet and see news about the bad things that soda brings, right? 
those news stories don't just accidentally get there. I mean, there's more and more stuff. People are putting out more and more research so that we can someday just do it. Uh, the most common sense one that I can point out to you is, you know now when you go to restaurants, you see the menu has on there the calories. So that when you go to wherever they sell the bloom and onion, wherever that restaurant is, Outback, okay. Before, you might think, oh, it's just onions with a little bit of breading. Now you realize it has 2,900 calories <laughs> in the Bloomin' Onion. Do you think the restaurant industry was excited about putting the calories on the menu? I'm excited. I'm excited because now when I go out to dinner with my wife and she orders the salad and I look at the calories, and it's like 1,300 calories in that salad, and I'm thinking, the burger looks reasonable at this point, you know? Like, <laughs> get off my case, you know? This is looking pretty good, right? Uh, but other than me, uh, all the restaurants were not excited. How did it get passed? Because we made the stigma, which in your minds, and maybe even in mine, is all positive. So that nobody was going to really win if they stood up to protest this. Most people are like, shut up, you guys are cramming calories down our throats. It's your fault that I'm overweight. And you should put the calories on the menus. Joseph. So when that whole calorie count on the menus thing came out, originally if you had under 25 restaurants in California, you didn't have to do it. So Macaroni Bro closed 12 restaurants in California. So interesting enough, is there a way to get around those stigmas and things? Or We're going to talk about it when we finally talk about Christianity as opposed to elevators, smoking, and the Big Mac. But yes, there is, because they're just trying to get around the law. But that's still not addressing the stigma. You're saying like, okay, so I don't want to be subject to this law. It's okay, well, the law will change and will catch up. Because over time, you're going to be a bad restaurant if you don't put the calories on there. In fact, I'm not going to even have to legislate anymore. You're going to do it voluntarily. Because if you don't, I mean, you might as well just be molesting kids if you don't have the stuff on there. I'm serious. That's how stigma works. It gets to a point where it's so outrageous to be outside the norm that you have no choice. Now that we've kind of understood how this works, and you can see how legislation becomes easier, it almost is like stigma softens the ground. It breaks it up so that legislation is easier to plant. Makes it easier against things that you want to go against that otherwise you'd think impossible to think of a country that couldn't smoke. Impossible to think of them actually banning certain foods like sodas or like a certain kind of meal. And you might someday say to yourself, even now, impossible to think about a country where practicing Christianity becomes just so against the grain that I feel like I'm risking a lot just to do that. Impossible. Not with all the amendments, First Amendment, all the rights that we have. Not with that. And I'm saying, without trying to be an alarmist, just let's think about that during the series. Rachel? Uh, I think people smoking and fast food, you can argue that that's a relatively easy stigma to create because it has a very clear message behind that you could die. People can die if you don't change this. I would wonder like how much more difficult it might be to generate a stigma against something that's not like life-threatening or not infringing on other people's dignity and human worth. I wonder if it would take longer if it would be possible to generate a stigma that's not based on it can kill you or you're violating someone else's human, basic human rights. It would take 60 years. Because we are violating someone's basic human rights. The human right we're violating is the right that everyone in society should be tolerated and all things must be accepted as true. 
And if I have any view contrary to that about you, I am violating your basic human rights by having any belief to the contrary. And it's, it is a little more complicated. But I believe we're there. Let me explain to you why when we talk about stigmas about Christianity. I'm going to stop here when I read this list to you. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to read some decisions that have come down recently. What we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks is we're going to go backwards and maybe figure out, like, how did we get to this point? What happened? How did some of that stigma get engineered along the way, if that's what we can find out? Uh, was, it, was it naturally occurring? Like, was there some intent behind it? But I'm going to kind of show you how, at this point, like you can say you can't smoke in your own home or you're not going to be able to drink this size of a soda anymore. And most people are like, yeah, that seems right. Here's some things that are going on. This is just a sample of a couple things I pulled out. Uh, the Family Research Council and the Liberty Institute just put out something they call the Survey of Religious Hostility in the U.S. It's 140 pages of case notes. I've only read the first 20 pages. I've not even selected a third of them. There's so many of them to choose from. Let me just read you a few. A federal judge threatened incarceration to a high school valedictorian unless she removed references to Jesus from her graduation speech. City officials prohibited senior citizens from praying over their meals, listening to religious messages, or singing gospel songs at the senior activity center. A public school official physically lifted an elementary school student from his seat and reprimanded in front of his classmates for praying over his lunch. The U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs banned the mention of God from veteran funerals, overriding the wishes of the deceased families. A public school official prevented a student from handing out flyers inviting her classmates to an event at her church. The U.S. Department of Justice argued before the Supreme Court that the federal government can tell churches and synagogues which pastors and rabbis they can hire or fire. A federal judge held that prayers before a state house of representatives could be to Allah but not to Jesus. School officials prohibited other children at a school from distributing pencils that stated Jesus is the reason for the season. A public school district denied a woman an assistant principal position because she refused to remove her children from a private Christian school. The U.S. District Court in Dallas, we're not talking about some, you know, we're not talking about Portland, Dallas, ruled against her, arguing that the right of a parent to choose private education was not a fundamental right. A state law was passed forcing all seminaries in the state of Texas to get approval for their curriculum, their board members, and professors. The state fined Tyndale Seminary $173,000 for using the word seminary and issuing theological degrees without government approval. A Vermont resident applied for a vanity license plate that had a combination of letters and numbers that could be interpreted to be a Bible verse. The state refused to give him the license plate because of a religious content. A long-standing tradition in the village of Crestwood was a touch of Italy, which included an Italian mass as part of the touch of Italy. Citizens filed suit challenging the mass, and the Northern District of Illinois, the federal court there, said, you cannot do the mass any longer. Professor Martin Glasgow applied for a position of observatory director at the University of Kentucky, but he was turned away after the hiring committee found out he was a Christian. Kentucky. The University of Texas at Arlington Seems like Texas has a problem. You'd think like Texas would be like red, white, and blue, and Jesus too, you know? The University of Texas at Arlington fired two women. These two women were fired for privately praying for an absent coworker after work. A Christian photography company was sued 
after declining to take a job photographing a same-sex couple ceremony. The New Mexico Human Rights Commission ordered the photographer to pay over $6,000 in attorney's fees. Dr. Frank Turek, a Cisco employee, was fired for his religious views that marriage should be between a man and a woman. He'd never expressed his views at work, but did express it in a book he had authored. Samantha Schultz, an eight-year-old girl from Port Charlotte, Florida, was barred from singing Kumbaya at a boys and girls club talent show because the song included the words, Oh Lord. The club's director said, you have to check your religion at the door. I could go on and on and on. Maybe some of you think, yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to do some of that stuff. That's crazy. That you would think in this day and age that you could sing Kumbaya at a boys and girls club. Don't we all know that we're supposed to leave our religion at the door? I would challenge you and say, that wasn't ever really our views in society. Have you bought into them too? Have we really gotten to the point where these things are going on? The answer is yes, and it's not something new. These decisions are the result of a trajectory that's been going on for 40, 50, 60 years, uh, beginning way back when, when none of us were paying attention, even before we were born, uh, to decisions that were made that I think we're just now starting to see the results of. And there's plenty, plenty more, which I might bring up in future weeks, but it's just enough for us to start to identify, no wonder I often feel the pressure to just stay silent. It seems like now the government has moved in to start to enforce some of these things. Most of these things are courts and government agencies. And why? Why can they even think to do that? Because the stigma has softened the ground. Ray? Right. How do you think the trend has been towards excluding religion as opposed to being inclusionary of other religions? As opposed to saying, like, you cannot do these things ever because it has to do with religion. As opposed to saying, inviting other religions into these institutions. The problem with inclusion is it doesn't work because there's too many people to include. If you keep looking for the lowest common denominator that will allow everybody to be included, at some point you reach the fact that there is no common denominator, so you have to exclude. Let me give you a, a, a real-life example. The city of Santa Monica used to have a crush scene, which is a manger scene, right? That was like a traditional holiday thing. Many, many cities across the U.S. have a manger scene, and many, many cities get sued all the time by either other religious groups or atheist groups who say you're endorsing religion. Well, it is Christmas, and that is the symbol of Christmas that used to be there before Santa Claus, right? But that was the issue. So many cities started to do inclusion, like we'll allow other symbols. Well, after a while, there were so many symbols. There were so many things going on that it was starting to become a circus. So the city of Santa Monica thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to make 10 plots, 10 artist spaces, and people will bid for them. And we'll auction off 10, and you could put whatever you want in it. It could be Christmas, it could be Hanukkah, it could be Kwanzaa. It could even just be an artistic thing that has nothing to do with any religion. Atheist groups ran in and bid them up so high, I think they got 8 out of 10 of them one year, and started putting up all these different things to try to, you know, basically a little bit of an in-your-face, like we're tired of all this religious stuff, we're going to show you that we're going to buy them all up, and we're going to bid them all up to the highest possible amount so that there's no religious stuff. And at some point the city... I think their current stance is, forget it, we're not having anything. Like, this is becoming not just a circus, but now it's becoming ridiculous. And I think in some way that's just one practical example, but it's happening all over the place. If you're going to include everybody and everybody's ideas and add on top of it that we think everything is true and tolerate every single thing, at some point you realize this can't work. 
We can't actually believe that all of this is equally allowed. My second answer to you, by the way, would be that people who are driving this would love to see no religion as opposed to all religion. Like if you had a hierarchy, the worst possible thing is Christianity to continue to be a majority religion. The next worst thing, although it's you know, probably down quite a bit, is everybody's in. Best case scenario is nobody's in. We just move on. We've grown up. We had an enlightenment so many years ago. Haven't we learned yet? I can't believe this religion thing is still stuck around so many years after this enlightenment. Can't we just finally move on and realize that these are all myths, fairy tales, and ghost stories? That would be the best thing. And I believe the people who primarily enjoy seeing this spread are the people who are looking for that. So they're not going to try too hard to include. It's, it's, not, it's not workable. But they're not going to even try. Come back. So why aren't angry atheists feeling the same pressure to keep their religious views quiet? Well, I really don't know that I buy the argument that atheism is a religion. I know Christians like to say that, right? Like, it's a belief system, but I don't know that it's a religion. There are many angry atheists. I mean, you'd have to be pretty angry to form groups that try to do away with religion. Or you'd have to feel like this is, maybe you're not angry, you just feel like this is a huge infringement of constitutional issues. But I mean, there's a lot of things I don't believe in, but I don't join groups to oppose them. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to join groups, file lawsuits, raise money, uh, just because you don't like the manger scene. You know, I just, I don't have the time for that kind of stuff. Like, you have to have a big, big chip of some kind, or you just believe you're freeing people from an evil of some kind to spend your own money and to join groups and do this kind of stuff. And I'm sure if I had an atheist here, he'd probably accuse me for being biased for saying that. But at some point you go, it is really a lot of energy to undo this. So you really must have a reason. And it really is a fire in your belly. Uh, Because some of these things, I can't imagine they're doing much harm. But you really have that beef. What's that all about? So I guess my question, better phrase, would be, do atheists feel the same pressure to keep their views quiet as other religious groups do? They would say for a long time they did. The winds have shifted. The only pushback I would say is my dad and my uncle have talked about it somewhere. They still don't see it as possible that uh, a president could be elected who is open to atheists. And so they, they, they still argue that there's a lot of pressure against atheists as well. But we already do have people that are elected as high as the Senate and the House of Republicans, uh, House of Representatives, House of Republicans, House of Representatives. <laughs> that crazy thing called the House of Republicans. We still have that. And I think the presidency is often a poor litmus test. I mean, that's a hard one because I think, like, there are so many other places where they're making the most gains, right? I mean, people who are not affiliated making the most gains in society. I think they're like 20% of society now in terms of American religious experience. And I think that's going to keep going. Uh, I think it's a matter of time. Right. Uh, I would also say to you, they're, they're among the greatest people behind the stigma. So they felt it for a long time to just keep quiet about it. Um, and now it's different. I mean, it's different. I'm not saying that we did the right thing. We, and I wasn't even alive. But I don't know that that, that was the right response to silence people who didn't have our faith. But the penalty at this point is that now that they're grabbing a little bit of the positions and they're keeping them for themselves... Hence all those university examples that we can go into for all day long to make sure that they do away with it all. Yes, Chris? Could it be like multiple levels? So like at one level it's against Christianity or is it more at a root against at this day and age people value so highly their personal opinions and values and self 
maybe more so than they did previously. And so, like, for example, you can't say anything that offends anybody because you could be sued. And it doesn't matter if it's against Christians or anybody. And I know there's a lot of contradictions there, right? Because you, you point out some that are just Christian. But, I mean, you have to tolerate everybody and anybody. And um, anytime someone does something where it, like, hurts somebody, it's, it's automatically, I feel like, often, you have to just conform. Like, just, you know, be like everybody else and don't be different. So do you think it's more at a level of Christianity infringes on people's personal rights, and so therefore it, amongst everything else, like you said, every religion would be the priority, would be the preference. Since that infringes on other people, that anything that infringes on everybody has to be eliminated? Or... I believe that's right. I believe it's right for a number of reasons. One, Christianity seems the most offensive. I think by its nature it is. It's exclusive in its claims, right? It does not leave room for other views. Uh, so by its very teachings, it would be the most offensive to people who want, like you said, to have tolerance. Not that Christians have to be intolerant, but tolerance the way they've defined it. I'm going to be spending next week talking about tolerance. I'll leave the rest of it for there. But the way we've defined tolerance puts us in this place where Christianity is the worst of all offenders. So yes, they prefer to have all faiths be gone. Uh, maybe some would prefer to just let everybody do whatever they wanted. But Christianity just stands in stark opposition to that. The second reason Christianity is kind of the enemy is we just have some of the dumbest adherents around that do and say some of the dumbest things that make us... I mean, I don't think they represent our faith because half of them don't even know the faith when they're even saying the things that they're saying. And yet, we can't stop that from happening. And go back to my comment about forums and blogs and all the things that we say that you just think, oh my God, I mean, I don't believe that at all. You know, so I think both of those things are operative. But we should be careful. There's other faiths that have that issue. I mean, look at the trouble that Muslims have had in this country. So there are extreme versions of that religion that have caused trouble for the whole faith. And most of the people, in the, I'm sure, in that faith are like, no, 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 no. I don't believe that at all. I don't want that at all. And that's not the way that I practice my faith. You guys are ruining it for everybody. So I think in response to that, some of the people who'd like to see all religion go say, yeah, all right, good. So do it all. See, none of them are sane. And that's unfortunate. Yes. So do you think like, you would have a better response to someone if they asked you what your religion was and you're like, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in converting other people to my religion. Like, do, you, do you think that that would be like, more socially acceptable? It seems like the biggest stigmas are against the, like, the religions that are the most evangelical, or like, the most towards conversion. You know, nobody has a problem with Buddhism because nobody tries to convert you to that. All right, what I would say is, yes, you'd be more socially accepted. You'd also be departing from Orthodox Christianity. You'd be representing it to be something that it isn't now. Maybe you don't want to convert anybody, but it would also be because you've bought into the stigma and you've forgotten what the scriptures say, right? Or you've just decided, I'm just going to ignore that part of the scripture. I want nothing to do with it. And I know many Christians that are there. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying they are proof that the stigma exists because I hear lots of people who say, oh, there must be other ways to God. Maybe in some other religion. But I don't read the scriptures that way here at all. Our faith is flexible. There's lots of people that can disagree theologically about things without departing orthodoxy. And I'm all for that. That's what this group is for. But there are people who literally want to redefine what it is just to appear socially acceptable. And I think that uh, you are so stigmatized, you don't even know that you're fabricating at that point. So we have to be careful. Joseph? Um, how much of this do you think is politics? Because I know I see things all the time, particularly from Democrats that brand Republicans 
They're the Christian party, and they're also the uneducated party, and that's why they're the God-believing party, and that we need to educate them, and they'll come to their senses. Well, it is politics, because you can win by painting the other person as a fool. One of the funny things about this topic is oftentimes in Exodus, we tend to make fun of fundamentalism, conservatism. We get a lot of laughs out of that sometimes in here. One of the consequences of going too far in that is we actually are in bed with the very people who are dismantling our faith. That's a caution that we have to be careful of. We're trying so hard to be open-minded and all these kinds of things that we actually talk ourselves into positions in the name of being open-minded that are actually contrary to scripture and contrary to Christian orthodoxy. And half the time, we don't even realize it. We're talking ourselves into thinking we're enlightened. And we're actually helping the very people whose agenda, if they actually have an agenda, and I believe they do, is to do away with all faith, at least ours, if not everybody else's. And so we hold hands with them and point fingers at those other people, not realizing the person we're holding their hand is actually the one who'd love to do us in if possible. Yeah. Um, so what are some other examples of selection bias you know, kind of pushing us towards stigma, you know, in terms of like, oh, we're reporting on this, like this is a story to be reported, you know. Yeah, it's in journalism for sure. So when I talk about journalism, I'm talking about like magazines, news, newspapers, all this stuff, but you see it in, you see it in things as simple as sitcoms. So an example would be if you're a Hollywood writer and there's an author who's written this book, I wish I could remember his name, I think his name is Ben Smith, but I'm not sure. He is writing saying, I've sat in the Hollywood writer's room when we write for sitcoms, and we've talked together about how we write shows. And the, and, the, and the thing he's trying to reveal to America is, this is not a benign idea of let's think of something funny. What we're really doing is we realize that in our hands we have the power to shape culture. And we're trying to think, how do we write the shows in ways that support what we believe to get all those yokels, which is everybody who's not in Hollywood, all the way to New York, to think our way. So you could take a very intentional decision that he would cite that every show should include a gay character so that the U.S. will get very comfortable with gay characters. And not only that, but as you're writing, you have a duty that everybody understands that the gay character on the show must always be the best example of a good person. Never the villain. Never somebody who's done anything wrong. They're the ones that you think, well, in this whole show called Modern Family, everybody else is screwed up except them. Right? And that... That is not accidental. It's like part of stewarding that power you have of shaping people's minds. So that when you notice that state after state after state is starting to legalize gay marriage, you could say, yeah, it's about time or people are getting more tolerant. It's like, yes, but at least partly, if not mostly, because someone was thinking, we really need to change minds so that we can soften the ground and allow us to go through. Uh, the people who do that would vehemently deny they're doing that. But I would tell you from watching how stigma works in business and policy and even in media, it cannot be like it just happened organically that fast. It's just not possible. That's what our series is about. Catherine. It seems like stigmas are caused by like, like, like you were saying earlier, like a, a cause and effect kind of thing. Like someone um, does something and a whole bunch of people have recognized that this reaction comes out of that when this person does something, cause and effect. And so um, it seems like with Christianity, we also have done something to make society hate us. Um, so does that mean we own up to our the society hate and we maybe need to change the way that we 
um, elicit a response? Sure. The answer, the short answer is absolutely. The hardest thing to determine, though, is what part was something that we did intentionally that should be apologized for and which part isn't. So, for example, say we were belligerent to people, we were intolerant of people. We, there were certain parts of Christianity that stood against the civil rights movement. Take that. Right? So you could say a well-deserved mark, which is what stigma is. It's Greek for a mark, a bad mark. Right? So it's, we have a mark that we need to address. There are plenty of people who've tried racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to keep doing it for another 100 years, by the way. I'm not saying we're done. That's one where you could say we did that intentionally and it was deserved and we're paying for it. Or we also preached at places and said Jesus is the only way to go to heaven. There is no other way. There is no under name under heaven under which men could be saved. We did that intentionally too. I don't think we can apologize for that. In fact, just the opposite. Yes? Um, I would just say that like, I think that one of the greatest dangers of the stigma presents is forcing us to want to distance ourselves from the faith and say, those other Christians, those other Christians, but I'm not like that, and trying to prove ourselves better or at a higher level than other Christians, I really think that that does a lot of damage to the faith, is that I think we need to own it and swallow it and not change what we call ourselves and say, I'm a Christ follower, but I'm not a Christian, because I'm distanced from that, you know? A wise person once said, the church is a whore, but she is my mother. You, you have to accept that and say it's not always a happy place to come from, but the way to fix it and start instituting changes is not by creating more of an us-them mentality within the church, but presenting a united front and saying, yes, there are things that Christians do that are mistakes, but they are still my people, and to try and begin to maybe rectify some of those mistakes from within. Because I found myself doing that, you know, where I say, oh, those other Christians, and that's something that I've really had to work on, is being unified with other Christians, because the instinct is to not be. We abused our majority position in many ways. So it's not like we have nothing to do with this and suddenly somebody just rose up one day and said, I want to do away with this. But it's much more complicated than that. I think there are people who've just been waiting for the moment to dethrone Christianity once and for all for other reasons as well. Not only for other reasons, but as well. Soren, you get the last word. You want to jump in? Well, I was, when you were talking about back in the day, I, mean, I was thinking of... I mean, back in Christ's time, but even if we were sitting around at that point and looking at the things he was doing, and, and even what, I mean, a lot of the Pharisees did, kind of all the things he was doing wrong, or even as they look back and kind of these things that you said that pushed people away, and you could have done this better, and um, yeah, people have these expectations and things you were going to do when you didn't do those things. So, um, I don't know, it feels like there's always... There is always going to be that stigma. Part of it is well-earned, but part of it is just inherent in the message itself. And part of it is useful. So let me close by saying this. Don't hear me saying is all stigma is horrible. Some of you might totally agree, and for good reason, that we shouldn't be smoking, and anything that would help us to stop people from smoking is good for them and all society. There's a stigma today against racism. I mean, there is almost no worse thing that you can be called in political discourse or even in everyday dialogue, then somebody to say to you, you're racist. That's a conversation stop right there. You win every argument by pulling out the you're a racist card. Those are like trump card words. Like you throw that down on the table, conversation's over. The other person's like, oh, no, oh, they're trying to defend themselves because you've pulled out, you know, the bazooka right in the middle of the knife fight. <laughs> I think it's good that we eradicate all racism in the world and all prejudice. So I, I think stigma helps us many times. 
I'm just saying in this particular case, we have to at least think what's going on and how is it affecting us. Because I don't believe that eradicating Christianity from the globe is what we should be doing. I don't believe that. There are times when stigma has played a very good role, but I think for us as Christians, if you do believe in your faith and you do believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, this is probably going beyond where it should go. And we should probably identify where is it coming from, what's happening, what are some of those Trump hard words like tolerance and intolerance and those things. Um, And I think where Catherine wants to go is where we've got to go at the end is, is there a way to respond personally in your own life and with others that does not give in to the temptation to just walk away completely or to redefine it in such a way that it's not Christianity anymore? Is there a way to remain true to it? That's what we're trying to do. And I believe it's not just so that you can talk to your friends about Christianity. I believe you'll increasingly feel this pressure and you'll increasingly find yourself passing, finding ways to just kind of exist quietly. And I don't believe that's the way that Christ wanted us to live. No one takes a light and puts it under a basket. We're to be a city on a hill. That's very hard uh, if we're stigmatized. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for bringing together all of the elements that has brought us here tonight. The different ideas, the different experiences, our different thoughts. Uh, Even the friends that we've tried to reach or that we've known, that we've been pained over. Lord, I pray that that continue. I pray that in the wrestling of this room and in the things that your spirit does in every one of us, uh, we might not only learn about this subject, but Lord, that we might be healed that we might be helped in the future when this grows and continues. And Lord, daringly, I would say that you would take the thoughts in this room and begin to formulate them in a way that would start to reverse that trend, that would give other Christians hope when they hear about this, that we actually came up with something real, uh, that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak through this group and these podcasts. Praise in your name. Amen.